You're listening to The Jay Barker Show on Tide 100.9 in Tuscaloosa. Welcome to Big Noon Sports, featuring Lars Anderson, New York Times bestselling author of 12 books and a 20-year veteran of Sports Illustrated, and Matt Coulter, a former Alabama Broadcaster of the Year and longtime media personality. Here's Lars and Matt. This show presented Monday through Friday by Haley Sansing Union Home Mortgage. Uh, great Thursday afternoon to all listening. We appreciate that. We also encourage your calls. You can also uh, dial up our website, www.bignoonsports.com, and then uh, you can call us at area code 205-342-9904. Lars, what's going on in your world? What are we going to talk about today? I know we got a great guest lineup, as always, but what is on your mind right this minute? Well, we've got two big stories to to tackle right out of the gate, and that is uh, Greg Sankey, uh, the commissioner of the SEC, getting a contract extension And then we also have a troubling story, yet another troubling story coming out of Athens, Georgia, with the filing of a lawsuit. Um, And uh, and it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that it was filed on on the Thursday before the start of SEC Media Days. And it was filed by Victoria Bowles, and she survived the fatal car wreck that killed uh, a University of Georgia football player and a recruiting staffer on January 15th. And she's filed lawsuit against Georgia, the, the Georgia Athletic Association and Jalen Carter, who is now uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles. So we'll get into the harrowing, frightening details of what we have learned from uh, the filing of that lawsuit and also statements in that filing that contradict what Kirby Smart and other officials have claimed. So we'll get into that a little bit, but let's start with Greg Sankey, Matt. I'll uh, I'll kick it over to you. Sankey has uh, agreed to a contract that will go through 2028. You know, he's been commissioner since 2015. I just scratched my head. Man, time flies when you, I mean, it flies, period. But when you get older, uh, you know, a day, <laughs> let's put it this way. When you get older, a year flies by in a month. Uh, that's, that's how it seems. But anyway, he has agreed to a contract through 2028, which I think is incredibly good news for all conference members and football. But what I immediately, and this is the way we think now, um, it should think in some ways, though. Um, what if something comes along and we need a dean of all of college football? Do you think, Lars, that somewhere in this contract extension, it's written that he's ours, the SEC's, through 2028, unless? <laughs> I think there's an unless clause that somehow they pull everything together Maybe it's with the NCAA, maybe it's not, maybe it's through some federal legislation, whatever the case may be. And the gurus of college football say, we want Sankey. That's, that would be able to happen, I would think. I, I hope so. Um, you and I are both big fans of Greg Sankey. And uh, by evidence of this contract, all of the presidents of the SEC schools are also fans of, of Sankey. 
Um, I, I've known Greg a, a long time. Um, it goes back to I, I had a close relationship with Mike Slive. Um, we traded books, uh, Commissioner Slive and I did. And uh, when the storm and the tide came out uh, in 2012, I think it was, or 2013, um, Commissioner Slive uh, summoned me to uh, his office his, uh, in, in downtown Birmingham. And, uh, and we talked about, you know, talked about the book and, and how much he appreciated me writing it. And, uh, and, and Greg was there too, because Greg, he was just uh, constantly in Mike's live shadow. He had been groomed for this position by Mike for years and years. And it was evident, you know, to anybody who knew the dynamic of their relationship that Greg would ultimately be Mike's replacement. And, uh, and, and like, he has so many qualities that are similar to Commissioner Slive. He, he's, a, he's a consensus builder. He's a visionary. Uh, he's obviously a, a leader. And he, uh, you know, un, under Slive, I think before Slive, and this, this predates my time living in Alabama, so you'll have to help me on this, Matt. But one of the things that Mike told me that he was proudest of before he uh, sadly passed away from prostate cancer was that when he came to the conference, there was so much bickering between uh, universities and, and almost like backstabbing and, and trying to, you know, report on one another, tell on one teams another. A lot of probation. Yeah. And, and, and under Slive's tenure, all of that stopped because he, he made everyone see that the SEC was far more powerful when everyone worked together rather than as individual entities. And Greg has kept that philosophy and, and moved forward and, and put his own stamp on it, no, no question about it. But, you know, he was the leader of the SEC when it came to um, making decisions on the pandemic. Uh, and he really not, was not just a leader in the SEC, but all around the nation for, for college football and other, other sports. Um, he has been instrumental, absolutely instrumental in developing the new 12-team college football playoff structure that will begin after the 2024 season. Uh, he negotiated the addition of Texas and Oklahoma to the conference. Uh, he is obviously, uh, I would say, the top leader when it comes to the rapidly evolving name, image, and like likeness landscape. You know, he's communicated with different senators, uh, different um, uh, governors, uh, I, I believe uh, with White House officials. I mean, he is doing as much as he possibly can to try to level the playing field and figure out a way uh, out of the mess that we're currently in uh, because what we're currently in, as you and I both know, Matt, is essentially college free agency and high school kids uh, are too often making decisions to go to the highest bidder rather than to what school is the right fit and what school can help them develop the, the skills that they need to succeed 
both in the professional world of, of sports and in the professional world of, of business or, or whatever. So I, I love this move. Um, just on a personal note, Greg is as, is as nice as, uh, as anyone with that kind of power could be. And that's exactly how Greg Sankey was. And I'll also tell you this, Matt, that Greg treats me exactly the same today as, uh, and now that he has all this power and has emerged as this tour de force personality person in, uh, in, the, in, in the world of collegiate athletics, he treats me the same now as he did when he was Mike's lieutenant, you know, the second in command. And he's just, uh, he's, a, he's a bridge builder and uh, he's, he's a perfect fit. And frankly, I, I don't know of anyone who could replace him right now. I mean, you and I have kind of jokingly said that, that uh, Greg Byrne would be an excellent SEC commissioner. And I still believe that, uh, but uh, because he has skill, his skill set, it seems to me, is very similar to Greg Sankey, right? And, and we saw that with, with uh, you know, de- decisiveness. That is one of the qualities of a leader and uh, the ability to sort of trust your instinct and look at what he did he did with uh with um excuse me sorry i just got distracted there for a second by my dog um uh i'll just i'll just stop here and i've, I've rambled on long enough but i think uh i think greg is 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 terrific and and again like uh um what, what i was trying to Go ahead. I'll, I'll just I'll just, I'll pass the baton to you. Okay. Right? And the, we'll, the, the, we'll, the dog we'll the dog ahead. knocked me off my game there. <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff happens. Believe me, I know. Um, we'll take a break, and when we get back, we'll continue the discussion about Greg Sankey, about the SEC, about Georgia, as we will be joined by twenty four sevens Bama twenty four seven Mike Rodak. As you listen to Big Noon Sports, presented by Haley Sansing, Union Home Mortgage. From T-Town to the Plains, this is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. 100.9 Tuscaloosa weather. Occasionally cloudy with scattered to numerous showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and early tonight. The high today, 90. Tonight's low, 74. Tomorrow and Saturday, a mix of sun and clouds both days with scattered showers and thunderstorms. Storms, highs right around 90. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 75 degrees in Tuscaloosa. This is Big Men Sports. Matt Coulter along with Lars Anderson. 
Our many thanks to Justin Jones, who's back at our flagship station, Tide 100.9, right there in Tuscaloosa as he mans the controls. And we're joined now by one of our weekly regulars and a great contributor to Big Noon Sports, and that's Mike Rodak from Bama 24-7. Mike, how's it going? You got your bags packed, or are you the guy that waits until Sunday and does that? Uh, well, just one day for us up there um, in, in Nashville. It was a little bit different when we were at AL.com because it was, you know, we're kind of covering the whole conference and we'd go for for two or three days. But in this case, you know, at 24-7, we have, you know, Georgia writers and Tennessee writers, et cetera. So really just going up for Alabama. Uh, so I'll head up Tuesday and come back on Wednesday and uh, a little bit of a shorter trip. But at the same time, also a longer trip because it used to be you could just drive 20 minutes down the road to Hoover yeah. and be home for dinner that night. But a little bit different these days. What do you think when Greg Sankey, who just got, had his contract ex, extended through 2028, so you can comment on that if you'd like, but uh, what do you think when he takes the podium will be his topic or topics? Yeah, not terribly surprising as far as the uh, extension. I mean, obviously he's um, you know, done a good job, I think, with, with the SEC. It's, it's certainly um, it, it's grown, obviously, with Texas and Oklahoma in, in terms of the topics. I think that is going to be something that um, is going to be discussed, and it's obviously not happening this year, but um, it will happen next year. And, and by the way, I think one of the things he's going to announce next week is that Media Days in, in 2024 is, is going to be in Dallas. Um, I think that's a lot of people you know, are assuming that at this point um, as kind of a, a welcome, if you will, for Texas and Oklahoma. But in terms of next week, I still think he's going to be talking about the growth of the conference, how the, the conference is in a good place with its um, TV deals that will be um, starting up uh, next year as well, you know, with, with ESPN and uh, the increased revenue that that brings. I'm sure he'll focus more on the um, ability for fans to kind of have a better idea of game time and all that. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's a state of the conference type of speech. And, um, you know, he might touch on things like, you know, the transfer portal and NIL legislation and some of that stuff. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's that's happening on a bigger scale than just than just the SEC. Mike, do you think that Commissioner Sankey, in his opening address, will offer thoughts on solutions to uh, the all to various issues going on, namely name, image, and likeness? So I think. I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to say that they're working towards federal legislation, because I think that's still the the goal of the conference. We saw him and, you know, Nick Saban and, um, you know, a bunch of coaches really and athletic directors and presidents that were up in Washington about a month ago, um, right after the spring meeting. So um, that's still their goal, but it, it really seems like the more and more that comes out, you know, more reporting that comes out on, on the national legislation front. It's just, it, it's very hard to get done. It, it's really borderline unrealistic, um, especially with an election uh, that's going to be coming up now in, in just over a year. And, and that tends to slow things down because nobody really knows, you know, who's going to be in charge. Um, so it just, it, at the end of the day too, it's, it, it's an intermediate step. I, I think the whole of college football is still moving towards a model, um, probably in a, in a manner that can't be stopped to where players are some sort of employees. Um, so they can try to, you know, try to keep the, 
the, the floodwaters at bay with, with legislation, but um, the Supreme, not the Supreme Court, but this, this case in, in the court system in California, um, some of the legislation they're trying to pass in California that would make players employees and then there would be revenue sharing. I mean, that's, that's really where this is headed, and I think everybody understands that. So um, he can kind of propose that they still want to get legislation that cleans things up, and maybe that happens to a, a small extent. But, um, you know, the, at some point, the SEC and the NCAA and college football in general is going to have to realize that they're going to have to pay players um, on a, you know, very official sort of level as employees. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, expecting Congress to uh, figure out a solution is uh, a pipe dream, in my estimation. Um, Conference-wide, what what are some storylines outside of Alabama? We'll get to Alabama in a second. But uh, conference-wide, what are some storylines that you are particularly interested in? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's tough to get around sort of the uh, the can-Georgia repeat um is alabama you know has has alabama fallen behind georgia i think that's that whole concept wrapped into one is is going to be the the biggest story next week in nashville and something that um in some way nick saban's going to be asked about in some way kirby smart's going to be asked about sure other coaches will as well and you know for kirby we kind of already know what his answers are because he answered a lot of the same questions last year about trying to repeat for a title and how Kirby wants his players to be uh, the, the ones doing the hunting and not the, the ones being hunted. I think that's something we're going to hear out of him. Um, and I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Nick Saban does acknowledge, and I think he's done this before to some extent, that Georgia has pulled ahead, that Georgia right now uh, with what they've done the last couple of years is, is in a better spot and Alabama needs to make up that ground. I don't think Nick Saban's going to deny that. I think that's something that he's going to use as, um, you know, kind of framing the the motivation for their season. So, um, you know, we'll hear about that. And I think, you know, the, the quarterbacks in general, like where, you know, you lose Bryce Young, you lose Stetson Bennett. Um, you know, what's the state of, of the quarterback position in the SEC? I know KJ Jefferson, um, you know, the the poll that AL.com just did of, of all of the sports information directors, um, across the SEC, he was the first team All SEC preseason quarterback, and uh, we'll have to see if, if the media picks the same. But um, you know, who's the best quarterback in the SEC? Who's number two? Who's number three? Those questions aren't as clear as they were maybe a year ago. And what is your sense that uh, is Nick Saban going to have some overriding message uh, that he is going to be trying to hammer home when he is up at the up at the dais in front of the, all the reporters? Yeah, I think you know there always is a theme, and a lot of the things that he'll say, I'm sure that you know we've already heard before. Cause he typically you know sticks to the same talking points, and I'd say that it's going to be two pronged. He's, he's probably going to give some opinion. Uh, more broadly on college football, which, you know, I think we've heard a lot of, and, and they have evolved. I mean, the last time he spoke, you know, really extensively about um, NIL, I remember the Stephen, Stephen A. Smith podcast, and he's saying that let's, let's make a model where, where players are employees because that's that's going to be um, the better way to go. And that that's a change from where, you know, he kind of used to be a couple years ago. So, you know, there's going to be a broad talking point that he'll – put out there as far as the portal and NIL and all that in terms of his team and the football aspect of it. I, 
I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's all about trying to recapture and um, get back and um, you know I, I don't know the exact wording that he'll use. I'm sure it's being prepared as we speak, but uh, it's going to be a theme of of trying to get back to where they were. And, um, you know, that's it's it's clearly not where it was, and so that's again I think going to frame their season is, is trying to get his players motivated to. Uh, climb back on, on top of the mountain. Oh, we're going to chase this rabbit down one more hole, and then I want to talk some actual football. But, you know, Mike, in your opinion, by the way, we're talking to Mike Rodak, Bama 24-7. In your opinion, with the NIL, the transfer portal, all that type of situation that we're dealing with, or in some cases not dealing with, do you ever see federal legislation taken over here? And if so, will it be in this decade? I think there could be a scaled back, small scale bill that doesn't solve nearly as many problems as people want it to um, in college sports. I think there could be some agreement on, um, you know, trying to think, you know, just protection from the NCAA getting sued, for instance, if a player transfers outside of the transfer portal window and he, you know, he sues the NCAA saying I should have the right to transfer stuff like that stuff like an NIL um, you know Texas A&M using their um, you know their foundation their, their I don't know if it's a nonprofit, but kind of using their foundation arm to raise money to pay players um, that's protected under the Texas law and I think the whole idea is let's protect that under a federal law not protect it but actually ban it under a federal law which would then you know, supersede the, the Texas law. I, I don't think that stuff's going to happen. I think it's smaller scale agreements that maybe they can they can come into focus on. But it's you know just a, a big bill that solves everybody's problems that both sides of the aisle can agree on that nobody's going to try to ram other things into. Um, you know, in terms of other. Uh, legislative priorities that get attached to the bill and then you know there's negotiations and basically hostage standoffs over those aspects of those bills i mean that's that's how congress works and i just i don't see it working out for um you know people in college sports that want it to solve everything all right mike as promised can we talk some actual alabama football here and take a quick break and bring you back as well yeah definitely all right good deal Mike Rodak, 24-7. That's Bama 24-7. is with us on Big Noon Sports, presented by Haley Sansing, Union Home Mortgage. From T-Town to the Plains, this is Alabama's most in-depth analysis on the SEC. This is Big Noon Sports. All the players that come to SEC Media Days are... They're savvy young men, you know. They they have been tra- they've had media training. Uh, so this brings me to the question: Do you find SEC Media Days useful, or is it just sort of uh, <laughs> I don't know? Is it is it is it an outdated is it an outdated endeavor that 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 we go through every year, or do you actually find it to be? Uh, a, a good thing in terms of uh, just trying to identify, you know, storylines that that you may want to follow that are not just team specific, but when you want to zoom out and take a big picture of the uh, conference as a whole. Yeah, a few things there. I think 
your your last point is probably right on the money. I think it's better for an opportunity if you have a big picture story to go and ask a bunch of players and coaches from across the conference about. I remember doing it a couple of years ago when um, NIL had just started, you know, July of 2021, and asking players about whether they have NIL deals and, and all that, which seems decades ago. I mean, that was quaint. <laughs> Um, cause it's, that's not how NIL works. It's not about endorsement deals. It's about just simply paying players through a collective. But, um, you know, just asking about general football, um, you know, changes, like if there's a rule change or something like that, asking all the coaches about that, it's, it's a really easy opportunity to do that because they're all going to be in the same place. But you're right from a, you know, getting real good insight or, you know, real good quotes or anything like that. It's, it's not particularly useful. Um, everything's kind of sterile. Everybody knows, everybody's been coached. Everybody is expecting certain questions. They have answers prepared for certain questions. And you just kind of have to, you know, write the story based off that. But sometimes it's not very interesting. Um, and I don't have a ton of, you know, depth of knowledge it's, this is only be the, I think the fourth media days I've been to but I'd have to imagine that back in the day it was it was probably more useful guys are probably willing to um, you know kind of uh, chop it up a little bit and, and make predictions and um, I say trash talk but I, I have a feeling back you know same thing in the NFL like guys historically were a little bit more willing to do that and nowadays if they do that it's all over Instagram, it's all over everywhere, and they ended up, you know, paying the price for it. So I think guys are very careful these days. One of these days, I'm going to get you and Lars and sit down. We might have a cold beverage, and I'll tell you about the method they used before SEC Media Days. It was a little thing they called Skywriters, where about <laughs> 60 members of the media would get on a King Air and travel to every single city. Uh, I think we would do 10 stops in 10 days. It was amazing, and as you guys would imagine, it was a whole lot of fun. But uh, what was, wanna, Matt, Matt, but what was better—the actual like interviewing players or just the uh, activities you engaged in with your fellow reporters? Oh, it was the camaraderie. There's no question about <laughs> it. And, and this was—it was an airplane full of crusty vets and a couple of rookies like myself. And there was rookie induction too, and it was all just wonderful fun and we busted our butts too a lot of good stories that you can't get today came out of the skyriders so anyway all right i did my little dive there now i want to go ahead mike i want to go two months there are a lot of people uh, national pundits and some local as well that think texas has a chance and they do have a chance that texas will beat alabama at bryant denny stadium your reaction to that yeah, you know, it's something that Sark's been asked about a few times now. I think, you know, it's kind of given a very sterile answer. And I, I, I do think there's a level of confidence on Texas's part, and I don't think it's unjustified either. I mean, granted that game was in Austin last year, but, you know, Quinn Ewers and Xavier Worthy in the first quarter of that game looked like they really had Alabama's defense beat. And uh, that that combination's still there this year. I mean, it's, it's Quinn Ewers throwing balls to Xavier Worthy. And Alabama's secondary is still Cooley McKinstry and Terry and Arnold, and there's going to be, you know, new faces at safety. Um, obviously a new coordinator, but it's it's a lot of the same players that are, are going to be going against each other in that respect. And 
Um, you know, does it help Alabama that the game's in Tuscaloosa? Certainly. Um, is that the deciding factor? No. I mean, we've seen them lose games there before. Um, so, you look, I, I think that's the toughest game on their schedule. Um, I think Texas coming in, I mean, you can make a case Tennessee coming in, um, you know, with Joe Milton and, and that offense that gave them trouble last year could be their toughest game. But, um, you know, I, I think it's Texas. And especially when you're looking at Alabama's side of it where, you know, there's quarterback uncertainty and um, that's really the first big stage, the first big moment. If it's Ty Simpson or if it's Tyler Buckner in, in an Alabama uniform, it's obviously a big moment still for, for Jalen Miller, even with his experience. So can they handle that? And, um, you know, is it if they lost, is it the, the death knell of their season? No, I think they could still run the table after that, make the playoff and be in a good spot. But um, it would be kind of the earliest loss that I can remember in, in a long time for Saban. Um, I mean, I think that Ole Miss game, one of those years, was pretty early. But this, I think, would be the earliest probably since, uh, I don't know, his first year maybe. Mike, I'm I'm not sure if you saw this uh, this morning that uh, Vic, I'm you probably I'm sure you did actually. Uh, Victoria Bowles, uh, who survived the fatal car wreck uh, that killed a University of Georgia football player and recruiting staffer on January 15th, has uh, filed a lawsuit against uh, University of Georgia Athletic Association and Jalen Carter. And in the lawsuit, that it reveals uh, harrowing details of the crash and also uh, makes some statements and asserts uh, certain facts that contradict what uh, what Kirby Smart and other Georgia officials have said publicly. And since this tragic accident, there have been, I believe, four or five players arrested for speeding and uh, just two in the last week. Uh, my question is, how do you think Kirby is going to address this when he's up at the podium? And do you have a sense of just what's going on here at Georgia? I mean, uh, Matt and I have sort of, you know, gone back and forth on different ideas of what is happening. Is it a sense of entitlement after winning two back-to-back winning national championships in a row? Because uh, you have seen national championship winning teams uh, have a rash of legal problems, like at, right after winning the national title. Um, I, I don't know, but I was, just would love your uh, opinion and analysis of, of what's going on at Georgia. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I've watched it from afar. I can't say that I've, you know, I, I followed every single detail. I did see the headline this morning with with the lawsuit, and I. You know, I saw the thing earlier this week with you know Georgia requesting the retraction of, of the Atlanta Journal Constitution story, which had gone in depth about you know sort of the culture there, and I think there was another story about um, you know another player getting stopped for speeding. And it's you know it, it, I would say this: if you apply the whole situation to, I mean, I don't want to say Northwestern, but like a school, a, a lower level school that's not as successful, a coach that's more vulnerable than it would be a different situation. I think there would be, you know, calls for that coach to face discipline or that program to be investigated or whatever the case may be. I think there would be more criticism given that it's at Georgia and Georgia's won the last two national titles and, you know, fans have there, I'm sure have kind of raised Kirby up and um, he's not Nick Saban status yet, but he's, 
he's he's moving that direction, then I think it becomes tougher um, to to topple somebody like that. And and a lot of these things are bad, but they're also not like a program wide. Um, you know, like you can say a lot of players are speeding. I, I don't know if that's going to cause like a groundswell of, of support against the program. Um, it's a lot of stuff that I don't say is borderline, but it's it's just there's not the smoking gun quite yet um, against you know the Georgia program or against Kirby. So, you know, my sense is that Kirby's going to defend his, his program um, against some of what's being said. My my sense is, is he's also going to acknowledge that players need to be you know educated or trained better on certain issues and um you know maybe try to play the middle a little bit that way but it's uh again you win two titles and and fans really get behind you i think fans are you read georgia fans comments and some of these stories and their reactions and they're very 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 defensive about their program and um you know good work on the ajc's part for kind of going up against that um but it's it's just a very it becomes a lot more difficult i think you know for a program to be toppled when they're in the sort of spot that they are right now having won mike tell everybody where they can catch you and kirk and the gang yeah it's uh, bama247.com uh part of uh, 247 sports and also on twitter at mike rodak Wonderful stuff as always, Mike. Have a safe trip to Nashville, and we'll try and catch up with you sometime next week in Tennessee. Uh, sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Mike Rodak. I don't know if we... Man, we got a good list of uh, regulars as yeah, far as contributing Mike to our so show. Mike yeah, is so good. Mike is so good. He really is. Um, all right. How good is Quentin Williams, New York Jets, former Alabama nose tackle? Uh, I'm going to tell you in just a minute. You're listening to Big Noon Sports, presented by Haley Sansing, Union Home Mortgage. Covering SEC sports like kudzu on the roadside, this is Big Noon Sports. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. Occasionally cloudy with scattered to numerous showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and early tonight. The high today, 90. Tonight's low, 74. Tomorrow and Saturday, a mix of sun and clouds both days with scattered showers and thunderstorms. Highs right around 90. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 75 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Back on Big Noon Sports, Matt Coulter, Lars Anderson, Justin's with us as well every day, Monday through Friday from noon until 2. We can take phone calls, too, if you want to chime in on SEC, Media Days, Sankey Extension, or this particular story, which Justin just unearthed off Twitter and sent immediately to us. 
Quinnen Williams, uh, former Alabama defensive lineman, has reportedly signed a contract four years, $96 million. I'll do the math for you. That's 24 mil a year, and 66 of the 96 is guaranteed. Used to, back when I was really young, first following football, no NFL contracts were guaranteed. Uh, Now, there's one in particular that's guaranteed 100%. But uh, Quentin Williams, uh, Hard Knocks, Jets, Aaron Rodgers, um, I guess he's worth every penny of that, isn't he? He absolutely is. Um, He had his breakout year in 2022, uh, last year. And that's a great time when you're an NFL player to have your breakout season in the fourth year of a five-year deal. Uh, and, And the Jets had the option. Uh, to exercise the fifth year option on Quinnen, and they did that. And what they want when you when you exercise the fifth year option, and you realize that this is a a cornerstone piece of your franchise, you want to lock that player up before the season starts into a long term deal. Uh, and and it was um, it, it was sort of a t- a touch and go as to whether or not this was going to get done, whether or not both sides could agree on something. And uh, and, and Quinnen Williams, he, he made it clear through his agent that he wanted a new deal, that getting this deal was a, a priority, and that he wanted an extension by April. Uh, and, you know, they, they went into May and uh, the two sides weren't even close on an, on an agreement. And, uh, and I think one of the reasons why this took as long as it did is because the front office was preoccupied with with uh, those prolonged trade discussions with the Green Bay Packers for Aaron Rodgers. And um, and so now that they have Quinnen Williams done, uh, they have secured, again, a, a crucial piece for them uh, for the future. And, you know, when Quinnen was at Alabama, he was just unblockable. I mean, and, and the adjective that comes to mind to describe his style of play was just like slippery. You know, for so he could just get through two offensive linemen like no one else, and he's just—he's got this, such a quick burst for a man his size, and he just has rare, rare uh, size, speed, skill combination. And so I, I think that uh, that the Jets made a really good move because uh, I think Quinnen Williams is probably the best defensive lineman in all of the NFL. What are your thoughts, Matt? Um, is Aaron Donald past his prime? Yes. That's what I would think, too. Um, I think that here's... He's still great. Don't get yeah, me wrong. But um, but Quinnen Williams is... I mean, it's... If you look at what Aaron Donald has done, I mean, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. No question about it. Being Defensive Player of the Year multiple times. Uh, you know, single-handedly freaking beat my Bengals in the Super Bowl 
uh, you know. That's why you think. That's why you no longer recognize him as the best team. Well, he, he he was on that on the final play of the Super Bowl. He was the best player on the field. Put it that way, because no question. As I remind you, every single day, Jamar Chase was wide open, and if Joe Burrow had two more said had, had one more second, second three one more second, second and it's and a touchdown. Man. The Bengals win on a walk off, basically a walk off touchdown. It would have been the greatest ending to a Super Bowl in Super Bowl history, but no, it was blown up by Aaron Donald, so uh, credit to him, but uh, I think Quinnen Williams is now sort of uh, is is in position to assume that mantle of best defensive lineman uh, from Aaron Donald, and these guys, you know, if you've got somebody as special as him it just makes your whole defense better. It makes your corners look better. It makes your it frees up your linebackers to make plays. It it just it just it, it, it because you have to account for where he is at all time. You need to double him or chip him with a running back or a tight end, and and he is just a he's a game changing player, and it's rare to have one of those guys on the defensive line. And so I think it's a really good move for the Jets. I mean, you know, he's not like in the Reggie White, Aaron Donald territory yet, but I still, he's still a relatively young guy. And I still think that he hasn't reached the ceiling of his potential. And uh, we'll see, you know, how he was certainly, he was motivated last year because he wanted what happened to, he wanted what happened just right now. He wanted this contract, and that gave him sort of that extra, you know, that extra push of motivation. And now that he has the contract, does he continue to be an ascending player, or does he level out? And I'm guessing, just based on his character, he's a he's a really good good guy, good dude. Um, I, I think uh, I think the best is still yet to come for him, and obviously the Jets do too. Adam Schefter is the one that broke this story, and then Justin is doing a great job at Tide feeding information. This is uh, a factoid, as Justin put it. Quentin Williams now is the first Jets player selected in round one to sign a second contract with the organization since Muhammad Wilkinson, whom they picked in 2011. 12 years ago of first-round draft picks, none of them signed a second until Quentin Williams. That's pretty darn interesting. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, well, look at the... Um, <laughs> so that was in 2011. Uh, and you just look at the Jets' general managers, the ones who are in charge of uh, picking players in the draft. I mean, ultimately, it's ownership, but really it's the GM. In 2011, the GM was Mike Tannenbaum. He uh, was let go after the 12 season, 2013, 2014. It was John Isaac, uh, and he, you know he obviously whiffed uh, on the draft, 2015 to 2018. It was Mike uh, McCadden, and uh, he didn't do well in the draft. And then uh, 2019 to 2021 was it was uh, Joe Douglas, and under his leadership, the Jets were 13 and 36. So. Um, you know, they, they, they got this one right. Uh, they got this right. And, uh, and obviously it was Joe Douglas who drafted Quinn and Williams should be noted, but, um, 
yeah, I mean, the Jets, they're going all in this year. I mean, they, they and they need to. They 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 need to. They they have spent an enormous amount of money, they uh in and capital in getting Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Rodgers as we know, he's still he's still uh, an elite quarterback, but you know, uh father time is catching up with him. There's no doubt about that. I mean, how many good years does he have left? Maybe maybe 3. Uh we'll see, but um the Jets are um yeah they're they are they're putting all their chips in the middle of the table you know um the jets haven't been relevant you could almost say since the name of era <laughs> yeah uh yeah yeah uh, now they have uh they've had a couple of runs since then and some pretty good teams but they're not messing around no more <laughs> I always thought Quentin Williams would be a fun guy to hang around. He just looks like he's a happy guy. Yeah, Doesn't he does. He, he kind of has that baby face, and when he wore his braces, it's just like, hey, I'm chilling. Anyway, he's chilling to the milling now. $24 million a year. And that's a four-year, uh, $96 million contract. 66 of that is guaranteed. Guaranteed another hour coming up on Big Noon Sports, presented by Haley Sansing, Union Home Mortgage. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. You've probably seen their clothing around town on game days, but check out Christopher Mobley on the Strip. It's luxury game day apparel redefined. It's the only place in town where you can find Todd Hoops apparel. Clothing designed for the modern day entrepreneur, golf enthusiast, and athleisure fanatic. They've got Peter Millard. Fiori, Grayson, and Mizzenamain. And if you haven't tried the Mizzenamain dress shirts, you've got to. You can find them at 1410 University Boulevard on the Strip. Also, they've got a great e-commerce site at ChristopherMobley.shop. So check out Christopher Mobley, luxury game day apparel redefined. WTUG HD2 Northport and W265CG Tuscaloosa. A Town Square media station. One man to beat, you can forget about it. Touchdown, Alabama. Tide 100.9 and streaming on the Tide 100.9 app. Back on Big Noon Sports, presented by Haley Sansing Union Home Mortgage, Matt Lars, Justin. Appreciate you dialing us up. Uh, headlines, Greg Sankey has a new contract with the Southeastern Conference, yay team, through 2028. He has been the SEC's top dog, big cheese number one since 2015. It also made me think it's, uh, it's been a little over five years since we lost Mike's live, and what a wonderful man he was. Uh, the University of Georgia, Victoria Bowles, who was uh, in the car, the SUV driven by Chandler LaCoy, Chandler um, lost her life. Victoria Bowles survived, but uh, 
her family has filed a lawsuit against uh, Jalen Carter, who was driving the other vehicle, and the University of Georgia. I don't know. I didn't. I could have forgotten this information, but uh, Chandler LaCoy had four previous speeding tickets, two of which are dubbed in the state of Georgia super speeders. Um, her blood alcohol content was 0.197, which is two and a half times the legal limit. Uh, vehicle she was driving was uh, going 104 miles per hour when it hit a utility pole. So uh, that is the situation that continues to hover over Athens, Alabama. Northwestern, ours, real quick and kind of fun. Uh, I read a story this morning. We talked with Rodak about this just a little bit. But read a story that said, could Ed Orgeron be a good fit at Northwestern? They need a, I don't know that Orgeron and his Cajun is going to go well over in Chicago, but uh, you kind of need a guy like that. And you know who came to immediate mind after that? Is, is Les Miles too old to try and put the, you know, put the pieces of the puzzle? Because they're either going to have to get somebody like that, or as you mentioned a, uh, yesterday or the day before, they're going to get ha- somebody that actually bleeds purple. Yeah, I think they're going to just um, announce that uh, one of the assistants is going to be interim head coach, and maybe Northwestern has done that. I'm not sure, but I think it was uh, probably going to be their defensive coordinator uh, that looked like uh, that he was going to be the one um, – yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, it looks like it's going to be David Braun, uh, according to multiple reports. That that Ed Braun, he was hired to be uh, the defensive coordinator in January. He uh, has been named acting head coach. Uh, that and then soon that he will probably earn the title interim head coach. And so why would you do that, right? Why would you make Braun the head coach? Well, he wasn't at Northwestern when these alleged uh, hazing acts occurred. And so he is, his hands are, are clean, right, of, of sort of the past coaching administration. So you, you wouldn't want to put somebody in place who, uh, even though they may have been retained, that they, you wouldn't want to put them in charge if they had been at Northwestern when the um, when the hazing occurred. So, I think Braun will be most likely be the head coach through the season, and uh, and that that's my guess. I mean, what Mike Rodak said made a heck of a lot of sense. It's just it's so late in the process and. Of the on, on the calendar for a coach, a coach from outside of the program to come in and put his own stamp of approval on it. I mean, that's the reason why you hire coaches in December and January, because it gives them a full off season to implement, you know, the the things that they want to implement and and really do things their own way and implement their vision. And so I think I would be surprised if somebody came in from the outside at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, could Orgeron be a candidate? Yeah. 
Uh, Les Miles, no. <laughs> I love Les Miles. I've spent a lot of time with Les Miles, but uh, no, he, he's his. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think his 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 time has passed. But Orgeron would be an interesting fit. I mean, I you know he. He's a charming guy, uh, believe it or not. Like, and there, there's a reason why he is known as one of the best recruiters around. Because you put him in a living room, and he will charm the daylights out of parents and 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 players. So, um, yeah, I, I I think that uh, for for this season, this is my opinion that uh, that Braun is going to be the guy. Braun wins four games. He's probably going to solidify the job. Let's go to our Big Noon Sports phone lines at 205-342-9904. Joseph joins us on this Thursday afternoon. How you doing, Joseph? Doing pretty good, man. What's on your mind? Well, I'm going to make a prediction for uh, 2023 football season. All right. Um, uh, my prediction is, as long as Jalen Merrill is the quarterback at Alabama, if this is this year and next year, Alabama will not win a national title. Alabama will, when we win a title, it'll be either be with Ty Simpson, Tyler Buckner, or it'll be with Julian Fayette. What? Uh, wh- wh- why do you say that? Why don't you have faith in uh, in Milrow and uh, and Tommy Reese's ability to, you know, to develop him into more of a uh, to develop his his ability to throw the ball down the field? Because he's only got so high of a ceiling. And uh, to be honest with you, and I believe Ty Simpson has a higher ceiling, I think Miro does get to start at the season. But uh, just to be honest with you, I think that's the wrong decision to start Miro. I think they're doing that out of because the players' favorites. And I think they're doing that because he's been there and he's the older guy out of respect, not because he's the best player. But um, I, I, I just uh, I just don't think he's got the uh, – I don't think he has the brain to uh, to win a title, to be honest with you. I don't know if he's uh, smart enough to reach that. That's a stretch, a little early, isn't it, Joseph? Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, Joseph, um, th- thanks for your call. You expressed the very same sentiments last week. Appreciate it. Um, I, there, yeah. there is one point that Joseph made that is true, and we have seen this literally almost to a fault. Nick Saban's a very loyal guy. Uh, no better case than Hertz and uh, his uh, his hesitation on putting Tua in when Tua was ripping it at practice. Yeah, there's uh, no question. I mean, I, I I remember this specifically, uh, and have written about it that uh, that 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 his, his his assistants were basically and players were basically begging him to put Tua in because uh, on the practice field it was clear to everyone that Tua was the guy and, and Nick Saban's loyalty to Jalen, he just, uh, he, he wasn't moving off of that. I think he was worried that, that uh, you know, Tua may be too, uh, too risky with the, with the ball, uh, taking too many chances because as you, we both know, as everyone in the state knows that Nick Saban is number one pet peeve is, uh, is turning the ball over. And every, that's a, the number one pet peeve of every coach, uh, in America, all the way down to the peewee level. But, um, you're right, Matt. I mean, it, it, it's loyalty and, uh, and, but you, you think that, that, that Nick Saban, um, he obviously doesn't have that strength of loyalty, uh, the strength of a bond of loyalty yet to Milrow. 
However, he did put his faith and confidence in Milrow last year when he had to go in the game against A&M, especially when Bryce Young went down, right? Yep. It made a, made a huge difference. But uh, I'll say this, and we've said this, and I think, Lars, I can speak for both of us when we think, even though there's a lot of talent back there, that initially, because of his relationship with Tommy Rees, I think it's going to be a Tyler Buckner quarterback team. But I say that in very strongly parenthetically note, we know who has the decision here, and that's Nick Saban. And um, Nick Saban's going to go with the guys. He said so often, what is it, Lars? Who wins, wins the, team. the team? Yeah, he essentially just lets it all play out on the practice field and then especially in games. And uh, I think multiple guys are going to get a chance to play and to show what they can do uh, when the lights are on. Uh, the only problem with this philosophy, Matt, is you really need a clear-cut guy against Texas. Yeah, I, I just it, Texas is a dangerous team with uh, maybe the top quarterback in the country, and uh, and and you you would be nice if you if you weren't still trying to figure out what the identity of your offense is, because the identity of the offense is radically different with Milrow as your starter than it would be with the two other guys, right? And I, I, I think that it see, and I, in, in, if you go back and look at previous uh, quarterback competitions, um, haven't you? He, Nick Saban surprises us, right? Like he, he's often surprised us by who he chooses to start the season, and that doesn't always mean that that same player obviously is going to be starting uh, the majority of the games, but. Um, I, I don't know that I think that that very issue is what makes this summer camp so critically important uh, because uh, they Alabama needs to figure out what their identity is going to be on offense. And I, I really thought and still think that I think that, that Saban wants to go to more of a of a rushing based offense and more power uh, and uh, and more play action. Uh, and so w w we'll see if, if that's the case. But um, yeah, it's, uh, this is gonna be a question that will be asked repeatedly on Wednesday when Alabama, and Nick Saban and his three players make the trip to Nashville and appear before the gathered 1,500 media members. There's really good news on the NASCAR Hall of Fame front. And our good friend Jimmy Creed, uh, who's good friends with the Allisons, will join us. And we'll also uh, go back to uh, one of the saddest days of my life uh, 30 years ago. Davey Allison died in a helicopter crash at Talladega. So we'll talk about that and a lot of other uh, NASCAR-related stories on the other side of the break as you listen to Big Noon Sports. Presented by Haley Sansing, Union Home Mortgage. The best sports talk in Alabama. This is Big Noon Sports. DQ. 
Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. Occasionally cloudy with scattered to numerous showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and early tonight. The high today, 90. Tonight's low, 74. Tomorrow and Saturday, a mix of sun and clouds both days with scattered showers and thunderstorms. Highs right around 90. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 77 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Back on Big News Sports, it's Matt, Mars, Justin, and now joined by our NASCAR friend, our friend Jimmy Creed, who uh, is going to talk a little NASCAR with us. Uh, you texted me yesterday. I'm going to let you break the news as far as the Alabama gang in the Hall of Fame. Uh, well, fortunately, after a long wait, uh, we got the Donnie got the Donnie Allison got the call yesterday that he is, made the. Uh, nomination list uh, to be voted on for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. So on August 2nd, we're hoping for some really good news for Donnie there uh, that he will be uh, joining Davey and Bobby and Red Farmer in the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte. And in the modern era, Neil Bonnet is again on the ballot. I'd like to see him get in as well. I know... <laughs> I know we all would. I'm speaking for everybody listening, but uh, let's hope it go two for two as far as the Alabama gang is concerned, Jimmy. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be fantastic if we could see Neil. Um, I I think on that side of things, it's it's pretty um, interesting because Jimmy Johnson's on the ballot and Chad Canales. Uh, so those two guys that were involved in seven. Nash, uh, NASCAR championships. You got to figure they're going to get a lot of um, a lot of attention, a lot of support. But man, it'd be fantastic if Donnie and Neil could go in in the same class. Let's uh, stick with Donnie uh, for a second. And for our, our listeners who may not be as familiar with NASCAR as uh, the three of us are, can you just tell us what, what are some of Donnie's career uh, achievements uh, that would merit him uh, a, a spot in the Hall of Fame? Well, Donnie had uh, 10 uh, NASCAR wins over his career, and he won 17 poles. And uh, that, Lars, it's interesting. A lot of people look at it and say, well, you know, Donnie doesn't really have the numbers to maybe to be considered for the NASCAR Hall of Fame because, for one thing, he only ran 242 career races, but um, he finished in the top uh, five in those um, races uh, 42% of the time in 242 races. He finished in the top 10 47% of the time in those races. And then the other thing that I think really is, is maybe starting to come into play more with the, with the uh, people who nominate and hopefully with the voters is I think they're starting to look more at folks who have made overall contributions to the sport. And um, Donnie's been one of the, and still is, one of the, greatest ambassadors the sport of NASCAR has ever seen. Uh, he has worked with a lot of the younger drivers that are big names today, particularly Joey Logano and uh, John Hunter Nemechek, 
and several others that have come through the Allison Legacy Series. And then, of course, the one that I think really carries should carry a lot of weight is, you know, he was one of the two main uh, players in the race that I think is put NASCAR on the map as a national sports entity, and that was the 1979 Daytona 500. So, um, you know, with those numbers and those um, the other intangibles there that, that he has brought to the sport, I think Donnie's is well deserving of, of a place in the Hall of Fame. Let's uh, stick with that seventy nine Daytona five hundred for a minute. Um, you know, I've I've written about it extensively, and I know you and Matt know the details of it as well as any people alive. But uh, the seventy nine Daytona five hundred was the first live start to finish super speedway event that was televised uh, by a major network. So the eyes of the country were really on NASCAR for the first time at Daytona, at the biggest race of the year. And then on the last lap, entering the back stretch, uh, the back stretch uh, for the 200th time on the 200th lap, uh, Donnie Allison was in the lead. Kill Yarbrough was in second. They wrecked each other, and this led to the perfect for perfect like made for tv brawl and uh and then richard petty just uh, drove past them to uh to win his seventh daytona 500 victory uh to win his seventh daytona 500 how big of a moment was that in your mind and also are there any details you can share that you've learned over the years that that maybe casual nascar fans don't know about that particular fight um, well, I can tell you that, I, you know, like I said just a few moments ago, I, I truly believe that is the uh, race that put NASCAR on the map as a national sports entity. Um, and you mentioned, Lars, that, you know, not only was it the first time that a, a network had agreed to carry a NASCAR race from, from green flag to checkered flag, which was CBS, but it, there was also um, the, a huge snowstorm that, uh, I mean, like a st- storm of the century kind of snowstorm that had the entire um, nor- uh, n- northern coastline, uh, you know, all the way up the east coast uh, was just snowed in. And in that, that time, you only most people only had three channels, so you had a choice of watching what was on CBS or NBC or ABC, and so a lot of people tuned in, and what they saw was, um, you know, this incredible sport of NASCAR, and then, and then they saw as as Ken Squire so uh, eloquently put it, there's a fight at turn three, and uh, but you know the a couple of interesting things about that that come to mind is most people will say, hey, you know, Donnie and Kale. You know, got, they got into a fight in the in the Daytona uh, seventy nine Daytona five hundred, but actually the fight was between Bobby uh, Allison, Donnie's brother, and Kale. Bobby came up and stopped to see if uh, if Donnie needed a ride back, and he and Kale started jawing at one another, and yeah. Kale uh, stuck his helmet in the in the window and and actually cut Bobby across the bridge of his nose. And Bobby got out, and they exchanged words. And then, in his way of telling the story, he he always says that 
At that point, Kale started beating on uh, his. Uh, Kale started beating on Bobby's fist with his nose, <laughs> which I always <laughs> think a is a great line. line. Yeah. But the other thing that was always interesting, uh, and, and Donnie said this says this in his book. Everyone, he, it was kind of one of those things where Bobby was was involved in a lot of things, and but then Donnie would kind of get the blame for it. He said, in fact, when he got back to the garage that day, uh, the first thing that his mother, uh, 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 Miss Kitty Allison, said to him was, what were you doing fighting over in turn three? And he said, Mom, I wasn't fighting. It was Bobby. He, he said, I was just trying to... I was just trying to break it up. So even his old mom thought that, you know, accused him of something that to this day he, you know, he claims that that he didn't really do, that it was Bobby that was involved in the fight. Uh, and it, it truly, it put NASCAR on the map uh, to a lot of people that hadn't seen it before. I already had a great southern base, but this right when when this went all the way up the eastern seaboard and then uh, across to the west coast as well for those dialed in uh a lot of fortune in that particular day uh with the weather well we're not having any luck weatherwise in nascar now but uh, uh to just totally turn the tables uh, 30 years ago yesterday davy allison died a helicopter crashed tragically at talladega um just jimmy uh, just a, a brief you knew him, uh, Donnie's nephew. So I'm sure Davy Allison has come up in a lot of conversations. Just a couple of quick thoughts on him as a racer and as a man. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I was fortunate in that I, I got to, I was just starting out my sports riding career at that point when Davy was, was really getting started. Had an opportunity to cover him um, some there early on. Um, and I, I truly believe there are a lot of people out there today. You see it posted on a lot of Facebook groups and things like that devoted to um, NASCAR history. Uh, a lot of people believe that if, you know, if Davy Allison had not um, gotten killed in the helicopter crash at Talliga Super Speedway, that Dale Earnhardt might not have seven uh, NASCAR championships. And I, I think that's certainly the case. Uh, I think that, that Davey was that talented, and I think that, you know, that was one of the un, many unfortunate things about his, his early death was that we didn't get to see what I think would have been an incredible rivalry between Davey and, and, and Dale Earnhardt. And as a man, you know, the thing about it that with anybody that, taught, that knew Davey well would always tell you that, um, he was the kind of person that, you know, if he, if he told you something, you know, you could take it to the bank and, and you know, and, and cash the check on it. I know one, uh, one person that was involved with him uh, in the, um, the Speedway crew, um, the emergency crew there at Talladega. And you may know, uh, Matt, I'm sure you probably know Ursula Smith. She was one of the people that was on the... Um, the crew, the emergency crew there at Talladega for a long time, and she told me a story about, she said she would never forget after Davey's first win there at Talladega in 87, she was one of the ones that helped escort him over to the press box for the winner's interview with the media, and he said, and, and there was so many people 
waiting at the stairs wanting autographs or to talk to him or to shake his hand that he had a hard time getting through to get to the press box and she said he stood there on the, when he got to the steps he, he stood stopped and he turned around and he said if i'm gonna go do this interview and if y'all will behave when i come back everybody that wants an autograph will get one and she said once he finished that autograph and this was his first career win now she said once he finished that the media session he did exactly like he said he stood there on those steps until everybody that wanted an, uh, a picture or an autograph got got a picture or an autograph and that that pretty much tells you what kind of guy davy allison was right there jimmy uh what do you personally remember about that tragic day uh, 30 years ago when Davey Allison lost his life? Well, I tell you what, it's the, the thing that I remember most about it, Lars, was actually, I mean, obviously, of course, you remember the, the incident and you're, you're wondering, it's, it's one of those things you're, you're kind of wondering if what your mind's eye is seeing is, is actually what's happening. But the thing I remember most about it was that was it came the next race at Talladega uh, when we were uh, and I was in a group of reporters that were interviewing Davey about that wreck, and of course we asked him what his what his memories were of it, and he said, well, the thing that he would remember most was that he looked he was because Davey was ahead of his of his dad in that big long. 20 car freight train and he said all he remembered was looking at um his um uh, looking in his rearview mirror seeing that car go up in the air seeing it get into the fence not realizing that it was his dad but he said it just by instinct he looked he looked down and he looked at his speedometer and he said he could calculate that at that point that that freight train of cars was running 220 miles an hour mm. and then then he came around he said you know he came around and saw that it was his dad and it really it, at that point that's when it really hit him and the, the thing i remember is davy had to when he got to that point and he started talking about his dad he kind of had to one of those give me just a minute moments because he got a lump in his throat and thinking about when you know what my i guess what mike could have been with his dad and i'll just i will never forget you know the 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 tone in his voice and the look in his eye when he was talking about seeing that wreck and then also never forget i mean you're talking about 20 cars in a freight train going 220 miles an hour it's just it was just unbelievable yeah, the entire field qualified over 200 miles an hour. Elliot at 212. Um, man, I could go. I could go down that road for a long time. Greg Spruz and I were the first. Uh, we were the first reporters. We met him coming out of the medical center, and the first thing Don, Bobby Allison asked is, "Are the fans okay, Matt? Are the fans okay?" Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was genuine, and it just goes to the safety factor. Um, you watch that over and over again. He, he walked away. <laughs> he walked. He, he got more injured in, in the fight in 1979 <laughs> than he did pirouetting through the trial. Oh, and, he sure hey, did. Uh, Jimmy, 
Tell everybody how they can catch up with you and how they can get eyes on the book you did with Donnie Allison. Um, well, I tell you what, at this point, you can, um, you know, the best way to get a, the book is um, you can email me at jimmywcreed at gmail.com. Uh, we do, we have a lot of books when we do pers- uh, personal appearances, like at the track. Um, and, you know, and so and Donnie has personal books when he does personal appearances up around Salisbury, North Carolina, where he lives. Uh, you you can probably still get some through, uh, you know, your major booksellers on their websites and things like that. But, um, but yeah, big, big excitement. As you can imagine, Donnie was really excited yesterday and, um, you know, hoping that we can get him voted. You know, we want him to win the fan vote that's coming up. Uh, that'll, that'll be count towards one vote towards the, um, committee that'll be deciding the voting on August 2nd. Well, good luck to him. Good luck to Neil. Good luck to you. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. Join us on Big Noon Sports. All right, buddy. It's always great to talk to you and you, you as well, Lars. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great stuff. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. Um, all right, Jimmy. We'll see you. Um, Lars, when we get back, I want to talk about Rory McElroy as he just continues to be He's right up there with JT as far as my favorite golfers right now because he has put his foot down once again on the Live Tour. We'll talk about that and more coming up on Big News Sports. This is the Big Noon Sports Network. Local church. Securing the best mortgage possible requires a lender who has knowledge, is trustworthy, and treats customers like family. And no one is better at all of this than the mortgage miracle worker, Haley Sansing. Based right here in Tuscaloosa, Haley Sansing has spent decades working in the mortgage industry. With Haley, it's personal, holding your hand from contract to close. With Haley, it's about one thing, you. Call Haley on her cell, yes, her cell, 205-792-1813. That's 205-792-1813. Let Haley help you. NLMS number 230376. What happens here, um, because uh, as you said, that Live Golf is, is backed by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, which is known as PIF, and... Um, you know, live immediately attracted criticism, you know, including obviously from the PGA. And then, uh, and that was largely due to Saudi Arabia's horrible human rights record. Uh, a reporter was uh, murdered uh, within the last few years uh, by the uh, state, right, of, of Saudi Arabia, by government officials. And also, um, this has been protested by survivors and families of the September 11th attacks. And um, it was, uh, um, you know, former President Donald Trump, he has been criticized because his uh, golf courses have hosted live golf events. And so um, we'll see what happens with with the Senate hearing and, with being led by uh, uh, Senator Blumenthal, who's uh, from uh, Connecticut. And, 
And so far, uh, uh, Commissioner Jay Monahan, PGA Tour, he's on medical leave uh, and he has not testified before Congress. Um, and the uh, shocker, Greg Norman, uh, he said that he was unable to attend, quote, due to scheduling conflicts. Okay, I hope you can see the roll of my eyes there, uh, that he, he, he refused to testify. And uh, Blumenthal said at the hearing that there is, quote, a sense of betrayal regarding this partnership. And he echoed concerns from 9-11 families and, and sports commentators and, and others. And, um, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and, and look, this is what he said. Like this PGA leaders for two years, they were vehement in their opposition of the Saudi government taking over golf in America. But then suddenly, boom, on June 6, everything changes. I mean, what's going on here? I understand that the PGA Tour has basically said, look, we can't compete with the Saudi money and, and we will go bankrupt. Therefore, we have to join forces. And, you know, this was the, the, the backers of Live Golf this was their plan from the very, very beginning. Absolutely. Was to bring the PGA to its knees monetarily to force a partnership at, at metaphorically speaking, at gunpoint. And uh, that's what they did. And in order to, you know, put lipstick on a pig, the PGA Tour, guys like Monaghan said, okay, well, this is what's best for golf around the world. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll get into the uh, we'll, Congress. Will take a big look at this. No, no question about it. I've got a stat, and you know, baseball is a game of stats, but this is more of a team stat about the Mets that will amaze you when we get back on Big Noon Sports, presented by Haley Sansing Union Home Mortgage. Covering SEC sports like Kudzu on the roadside. This is Big Noon Sports. Tide 100.9, Tuscaloosa weather. Occasionally cloudy with scattered to numerous showers and thunderstorms this afternoon and early tonight. The high today 90, tonight's low 74. Tomorrow and Saturday, a mix of sun and clouds both days with scattered showers and thunderstorms. Highs right around 90. I'm James Spann on the ABC 3340 Weather Center on Tide 100.9. It's 77 degrees in Tuscaloosa. Back on Big Noon Sports, Matt Lars, Justin, thank you for dialing us in. Appreciate it very much. Read this story this morning about the, the New York Metropolitans. This concerns their draft uh, and the lack of success. In the last 10 years, the Mets have had 328 draft picks. Guess how many they have actually developed to play Major League Baseball? 39% of their draft picks have made it to the major leagues. Now, that is a farm system problem. Now, just to put it into perspective, uh, the athletics are second worst as far as development of players at 11%. Now, you look up the Dodgers and you wonder why they're good for so long. 
23% of the players they draft, almost one in four, makes it to the bigs. Uh, that's an incredible number. And uh, now uh, all the money they've been spending on free agents, and the Mets still can't get it done. But now, according to this, it doesn't look like they're going to develop anybody to help them in the future either. I don't know. I'm not a big, big, big baseball guy, and, and everybody knows that. But uh, that just bug-eyed me. Yeah, uh, it's always fun to go back and see just how teams are have done in the draft over the years. And you can really tell uh, which teams are successful and why and which ones aren't and why. And that is you, you, you miss on talent. Um, and our, uh, our buddy who we just talked to, Mike Rodak, I, I meant to bring this up with him. Uh, the other day, last week, um, he did an interesting story on uh, 24-7 Sports on Alabama's 2021 football recruiting class and uh, where are they now. And uh, at the time that uh, when they, they wrapped it up, it was the highest ranked class by any school in the history of 24-7 sports database, right? Because Alabama signed, uh, I mean, it was just incredible, five, or sorry, seven five-star recruits. But now, okay, two years later, where is everybody? Well, two of those five stars are gone. Uh, and uh, let's just do a, a, a rundown here. Uh, there were 27 players enrolled from that class. So far, eight have transferred out. You have uh, five-star J.C. Latham, right? He, uh, he obviously is a cornerstone player uh, for Alabama this year. You have uh, in, that dra- in that draft class, in that it's almost like a draft class now, right, with NIL. But uh, in that recruiting class of 2021, what happened to Tommy Brockermeyer? Well, uh, didn't pan out. Uh, he uh, struggled. And, and I remember thinking that Tommy Brockermeyer was a, a surefire, you know, two-year, three-year starter. And uh, it just didn't, didn't work out at Alabama for whatever reason. Couldn't get into the two-deep tackle rotation. Didn't perform well in limited action and ended up transferring to TCU. And then he had five-star uh, Dallas Turner. We know about him. He, put, he worked out pretty well. Five-star Kool-Aid McKinstry, he worked out pretty well. Five-star defensive lineman Damon Payne, uh, he, uh, um, he, uh, he was that rare recruit from Michigan. He redshirted his first season, uh, and then last season he was a rotational players. Um, uh, so, but this year I think Payne is, is going to be a um, – He'll be a significant piece of that Alabama defensive line. Also had five-star uh, wide receiver Ja'Cory Brooks. We know about Ja'Cory Brooks. Um, he uh, it, it looked like he was going to have his breakout moment when he caught that game-winning or game-tying touchdown pass against uh, Auburn. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean he still needs to take a step forward. And then you have uh, five-star running back Kamar Wheaton. He missed his entire freshman season uh, with injury and then entered the transfer portal, and he's now at SMU. And it, the list goes on and on. You have a uh, four-star, Jay Hall, 
he ended up uh, transferring uh, Jojo Earl, and he showed so much promise uh, as a as a young player. And I remember Saban mentioning him by name as a freshman, but it didn't work out, and he ended up transferring to TCU. Uh, and um, and so uh, you have four star Terry and Arnold. He's a, a solid, good player. Uh, starts opposite of McKinstry. Um, and then, again, I, I'll, I'll quit going through all of these, but the class did not work out the way everyone had hoped, put it that way. I mean, it, it just shows you that even, you know, Nick Saban is as good as anyone as identifying talent. And it just, it is, uh, it, it, it just, it, it, for so many recruiting classes, it, it, it doesn't turn out the way you anticipate that it will. And, uh, and, and, you know, there is definitely a link between your recruiting class rank and where you finish three years later. But it, for this class, it certainly didn't pan out the way we all thought, Matt. Uh, Pat Dye once told a group of members of the media that, you know, if you can, and this is a little bit different because uh, players weren't transferring and making themselves eligible for the NFL at near the rate that they are now. Uh, this was in the 80s when Pat dies a powerhouse down on the plane. Uh, he said basically if you can get one in four out of your recruiting class to contribute in their junior and senior seasons, you have done a good job of recruiting. Now, obviously, these numbers go up and they may go down. Uh, Alabama's, I would think, are, are above, the, above what Pat Dye was saying. But uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And now, because of the transfer portal, and I can't, I, I, what did you name? Five or six players off of that one recruiting yeah. class that aren't with Alabama because they transferred? Yeah. Uh, that throws another huge wrench into the works as far as keeping up with this statistically. Because now I'm thinking maybe it's one out of five, if you're lucky, that hangs around and contributes to your program. The numbers you were just giving me, that's about what it sounded like. But, uh, all of that based uh, on the amazing Mets and then go straight into the University of Alabama with their recruiting classes. That was a really good transition and one we might have to pick up on tomorrow, do a little research overnight and, and figure out. Um, wonder what the norm is. I mean, what, do you think that um, Nick Saban and his staff keep up with numbers like that? Do they have a goal with oh, each absolutely. class? Yeah, and absolutely. we want I know they want 100% to contribute and become all Americans go to the NFL. Of course, that's just unreasonable. But I mean, um, I'll bet they've got a statistical analysis of their uh, of their recruiting classes big time. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the military, after there's any engagement, there's a, what's called an after-action report that is done. I'm sure Alabama has its own after-action reports when a player transfers and try to figure out what went wrong, what did we see, or what did we miss, or was there anything we missed, was there anything we could have done better uh, to develop that player. Um, you know that Nick Saban, he, he self-scouts and does as much self-assessment as any coach in the country. Uh, and it, the, the, the problem is, is like no, re, no one recruit is the same. And you just, you don't know how, how much potential a guy has when he's Gotta go. Sorry, Lars. Like Sorry to cut All you right. off. Talk to you tomorrow.